listen to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad and we are sitting in Dyson Dodi Castle which is just outside Currafin in County Clare and Dick Cronin is here with me who is going to give us a, a history of the castle and the environs around it. Dick, thanks a million first of all for taking the time to spend with us. Not at all, Austin, I'm delighted you come. And um, we're sitting in, first of all, we've just come in the, the door and we're sitting in a, what would be a square room that's mm. about, about 20 foot square, maybe 25 foot square. Mm. What is this? Well, originally this was called a cellar, and it was just a place for keeping butter and cheese and foodstuffs um, cool during the summer. Right. Um, because the temperature in here um, was, when we, when we came anyway, before windows were put in, uh, 51 degrees throughout um, summer and winter. Right. So um, it was an ideal place for, for keeping stuff cool. Right. Um, what Berlin is actually a tower house. Um, and uh, we're okay, we're okay, because we're okay, because that. Okay, um, we're in a tower house, which is basically a, a Gaelic farmhouse from the 15th century. Right. Um, I surveyed all the tower houses for the border works back in the 1990s in Clare, and there's 217. Hold on, can, can, can we just get that again? Yeah. 217 tower houses in, in Clare. In Clare, yeah. Now, they wouldn't all be in excellent condition like this. No, you know, I, 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 I... Some of them are just sites, and most of them are ruins. Yeah. And there's about 20 or 25 restored. Now, yeah. putting this in context again, yeah. these tower houses, mm. what period of time, historically, are we talking about that they yeah. would have been built? You're talking about generally 1400 to about 1550, maybe a couple in 1600. But you're talking about a 200-year period. Um, and are we looking at scattered, roughly equidistant around the, the county? Uh, no, no. Uh, most of them are built in good land, good farming land. Right. Uh, places, mountainous places, you don't get them. Okay. You don't get them between here and Milltown Malbe, for instance, because it's, a lot of it is bog land and it's, it's not very fertile. But anywhere you have fertile land, um, and, and good cattle rearing land, even the Burn. The Burn has 74 tower houses. Right. Um, so, so basically there were farmhouses, and if you didn't have a farm, you didn't have a house, you know. Um, they were built by the, the Gaelic clans. Um, there's one Norman castle out of those 217, and that's Clare Castle. Okay. Um, outside Ennis. Um, it was built by the, the Musker Gross in the 13th century. <coughs> but all the rest are farmhouses. And they comprised, they, they, they were very, they're very similar, they're very similar design. They're generally about five stories high. Um, and uh, on, on the site, they would have had a banquet hall uh, next door for entertaining guests, and then they had a high wall running around the whole place, which was called a barn wall. Barn being two Gaelic words, ba and dun, uh, which is uh, a, a fort for cattle. Okay. You took in your cattle at night. <coughs> And uh, then there would have been other buildings, like here we have a bakery within the barn, and there, which we excavated back in 1996, <coughs> and you would have had workshops and smiths and um, barns and whatever else was required, even a brewery here in Dyson at one stage. Now the construction of these, we're looking at cut stone as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they were all built in, in a similar manner. They were built on a plinth of limestone. Um, standing up out of the landscape. Right. Uh, they didn't. They didn't build on foundations. They didn't trust foundations. Okay. They built directly onto the bedrock. Okay. And usually, <coughs> usually the, uh, uh, the 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 bedrock was quarried away 
in the bedrock would have been quarried away then and the stones taken from the bedrock um, would have been used to build the tower house so it would have stood on a plinth maybe six foot high Right. Um, and then the plinth would have been fortified with a wall that was called the inner bond and then an outer bond might take in half an acre or an acre of ground um, outside of that again for the animals you know? but where would, the, where would the stone have been cut? Oh, here on site. On site. Okay, here so on. obviously there's masonry was a major part of it the was. It was. That, so you would need masons and carpenters. <clears throat> you would indeed. Now, uh, the other thing is between, between about 1300 and 1450, there were 80 abbeys built west of the Shannon. Cistercians, Dominicans, Augustinians, Franciscans. And they, they say that when, you had, that when they had enough of abbeys, they had thousands of um, skilled tradesmen who needed work and so they went and started building tower houses for the, uh, the, the ordinary population right yeah so the other question that I have is a tower house mm. if it is basically a farmhouse mm. how big of a holding would have been needed essentially yeah. to sustain yeah. a, a um, generally a townland now a ta Ireland is divided into townlands it's the smallest political division found anywhere in the world. Um, in other countries, it would be compared to a farm, uh, a large farm. Okay. Uh, you're talking about maybe three, four hundred acres. Okay. Um, but the ploughlands, uh, sorry, not the ploughlands, but the townlands were laid out as uh, in, in medieval Ireland, going back maybe a thousand years, going back to Brian Baru's time, and they were laid out as a land valuation system. Right. So a townland had to uh, sustain 300 cattle. So that, that's the reason why in very good land the townlands are small, but if you go up to mountains, you'll get townlands of maybe three or four thousand acres in them, okay. because that was required to sustain 300 cattle. That was the division. And then the townlands were divided then into quarters, Cahru, so you get a lot of townlands with the name Cahru Moor, Cahru Buan, whatever, or uh, Sheshif, if they were divided into sixths, or Kuigu for fifths, or even there's, there's one out in this case called Dehomed, which is the tenth part. So Dehomed is a, a townland. So they were all actual land divisions. Um, but the clans, the Gaelic clans, uh, were under the Brehan law system, which was very different to uh, other legal systems, very advanced uh, legal system. It was based on democracy. The chieftain would have been elected every four years. Um, he would live in the, in the major tower house during his time. Now, he might be re-elected again and again, but he might not. Um, so, because we weren't under Norman influence or European influence, it meant clans were entitled to build as many tower houses as they could afford. Right. So you had the McNamaras, which were probably at the time one of the richest um, families in Europe, built 82 tower houses, including Bunratty, which right. is a huge place, right. you know. And uh, the, the ODs here from Dysart, this is an OD house, they built four tower houses in Dysart. Um, but then you had the O'Briens, 47, and um, the, the O'Loughlin's at 17, the O'Connor's at 15. And so it depended on how much land uh, would sustain these number of houses. You know. So coming into that period then, these families would have acquired the land in what way? Oh, they would have acquired the land probably 1,500 years ago. Um, probably through war yes, originally, yeah. you know. Right. Um, but, but once they had acquired the land, um, it was theirs by 
uh, by law. Okay. It couldn't be taken off. So after no a period, the squatters effectively had squatters' rights. I suppose they had squatters' rights, right. like everyone else. But <laughs> what frightened the life out of the Irish was when the Normans came, not only were they taking their property and taking their um, um, cattle and everything else, but they were taking their land, which was unheard of. Right. Uh, unheard of under Gaelic law. You can't take somebody's land, you know. That's a God-given right. Okay. You know. So um, there was a huge amount of conflict, of course. Uh, of course, and then again, uh, it started again. Civil war started again in the 1540s because Henry VIII um, brought out this law called surrender and regrant, where he uh, required the Irish chiefs to surrender their land to him after the wars, and he would regrant them the land back uh, and give them titles of earls and dukes and lords and whatever. Um, but, and, and a lot of them did, like O'Brien and Clare, did accept this because it meant now the land was his and his families and his sons and grandsons, um, which wasn't allowed under Gaelic law. So it, it caused civil strife everywhere in right. Ireland and Scotland. Right. Um, and uh, eventually it settled down. Now, what happened in Clare was O'Brien became owner of all the land in Clare, but he re granted that back to the clans. So uh, the McMahons in West there got their land back, but they were only leaseholders now, and O'Brien was the owner. And now, what period are we looking at here? We're, we're looking at the 1540s up to the 1600s. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so um, going back to Dysart and the ODs, um, the ODs, of course, took the side of the Catholic Irish in all the various wars and lost out eventually in the six, 16, 1601 with an end of nine years' war in 1651, the end of the Cromwellian Wars, and again in uh, 1691, at the end of the Williamite Wars. Um, so eventually, like most of the Irish chiefs and their families, they moved to Europe, and they moved to the Catholic countries, and whoever would pay the most. Mm -hmm. now, in fairness, the Irish were in great demand, because they'd been fighting wars for a hundred years, they were at the cutting edge of military technology and military strategy, and so generally when they went to the continent, um, they got very good positions. Right. Now, uh, they went to the Catholic countries, so it was France, Spain, Portugal, Austria, and Russia. And people don't believe that the Irish, but actually an antecedent of mine, uh, Donegal Cronin, was Admiral of the Russian Baltic Fleet. In the, six, in the 1760s and beat uh, the Swedes at some famous battle that I can't remember now. Right, right. Um, and two and of these left here in 1661, left this house to join the Russian Navy. They were shipwrecked in the Baltic. They um, were rescued by two Polish fishermen, um, married two girls in Gdansk, and now there's 600 ODs living in Gdansk. <laughs> and they come to our clan gatherings. Well, they send delegates to our clan gatherings every three years. <laughs> you know, this is what we're talking about. Um, Mararua McMahon, who lived here for six years, had a son, had actually three sons while she was here, but in the 1640s. And one of her sons, after fighting the Cromwellians, uh, emigrated to Austria and became Field Marshal of the Austrian Army. And his name was Patrick Joseph O'Neill. Um, his son, Francis O'Neill, was the best friend of um, Giacomo Casanova, famous Italian writer. Right. And Casanova wrote 20 pages about Neelan in his uh, book, Histoire de ma vie, his life story. Um, and uh, he learned everything 
he knew about women from young Neelan, whose <laughs> grandfather came from this house, Dyson. Uh, it was an amazing story. You know? <laughs> um, uh, but the, the connections are absolutely amazing, you know. Um, even though it is a small farmhouse in yeah. the west of Ireland, but uh, the influence that it had uh, was huge. Um, other ODs after the 1690s, uh, James O.D. and again Dunnock, uh, went to Spain and they both became the colonels in the Irish regiments in Spain. You know. um, a priest left here, Father Peter O.D., uh, left here for France again in the 1780s, had a serious row with Napoleon, and he was deported to Portugal and when the war was over with, uh, with Napoleon and France settled down again in 1815 he came back actually as parish priest of a tiny little parish called Le Bignon outside Nantes in France but he, he wrote extensively about uh, the oppressive nature of the French Republic on the Catholic Church you know so, so the, the ODs had quite, quite an influence right. in, in Europe. Yeah. Dick, one of the things that's striking me based on what you've been saying so far is that we know that a lot of the Irish records were lost over periods of time mm. and it strikes me that as yeah. a result of this migration of the Irish yeah. abroad in that period yeah. that the richness of the history that you mm. have probably has come from outside the country more than inside the country. Absolutely, but another thing is a lot of these people brought their books with them and a lot of them are still um, in private collections all over France and Austria and, and, and Spain. Um, a lot of them written in Gaelic, so yeah. nobody knows what's in them. There are thousands of manuscripts out there, you know, mostly medical books, they say. Um, and uh, it's, it's only now with the Institute of Advanced Studies in Dublin and places like that that are actually translating uh, these books again, you know. Right. But a lot of our history is on the continent at the moment right. you know, because the Cromwellians burned every book I mean, yes, they were yes. illiterate savages basically you know, yeah. and books frightened them yeah. uh, so they, they, they burned every book they came across you know. right. mm. so um, we're now today we're going to uh, take a little walk through the, mm. the uh, tower here mm. and then there's an archaeological area around the castle as well when did the castle, you, while you were doing your research for public works, when did this castle become part of the um, Heritage Ireland or the cultural tours of, of the country? Um, well, well, I suppose it was first made a recorded monument in, in 1994 under the National Monuments Act. Um, at that stage I had it restored. I, I restored it back in 1986. Um, open it up as uh, an interpretive centre, not just for the castle itself but for 25 field monuments within a mile radius of here okay. so we've laid out an archaeology uh, trail um, I've published a book on the history of the castle and, and the archaeology trail and then we produce videos and all that kind of stuff um, but um, uh, yeah, bas basically 86 would have right. been the year that we opened up to the public um, mm -hmm. and it's been going since you know, yeah. So, given its location and um, that we are somewhat off the beaten track, mm. Um, mm. how are you getting the word out and what's the response like? Are you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, the response varies from year to year depending on, on how tourism is doing in Ireland, you know, uh, at a particular time. But um, and, and every third year you get a big crowd when you we do we have, have the clan gatherings. We have the clan gatherings every three years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. And we do get a big crowd. I mean, right. we've always had always right. had the biggest clan gatherings in Ireland. Right. Um, every year we we broke the record. 
Um, and we started off, myself and my ex-wife, um, started off setting up clan gatherings by writing to people all over the world. Right. Literally writing and putting stamps on them and sending them out and getting telephone directories from Poland and, yeah. and Australia and everywhere else. You know. Whereas now you can do this kind of thing on the internet. That's right. That's you know, right. Much easier. But um, yeah, um, you know, it's it's a narrow, miserable lane way up to the castle, but people <laughs> do do make their way up, you know. And we generally cover our costs, right. and that's right. basically from year to year, you know. Um, and it, it, it's not just a, a castle or a museum; it's also a community centre. Um, we we would have parties here on winter's nights. We'd have a Christmas party for the, the locals. Um, GA meetings are held here. Um, we have concerts. Um, so throughout the year, it's used, you know. So then, between '86 and '88, when or before you opened, was there much restorative work needed? There was a huge amount. We it actually put two stories onto the top. Uh, that were taken down uh, years ago to build houses and cottages. But the funny thing was, um, when we were looking for stone, we went out and we bought ruins. And we were surprised when we took these ruins apart, the bits of windows and doors of the castle came out of them. So we were recycling them and bringing <laughs> them, bring them back. back again. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, we had a few funny stories. Like when we got to the parapets, we had run out of stone completely and we'd exhausted every ruin in the parish. You know? um, so the lads. Uh, decided to go down to Ryan's Quarry, which is down the road. Um, and they were down in Ryan selecting stones and bringing them up and loading them up on top and building the parapets. And then some local wag christened them the Rhinestone Cowboys. So that then would have revived the, the tr uh, skill of masonry in yes. the, uh, at that time. Because yes. I know that's a trade that is in high demand in Ireland yes. even today. It is, yeah. And it's surprising how fast the skills will come back to somebody who's handy. Yes. You know, with a small bit of instruction. Um, I mean, some of the work here has amazed me by, by some of the lads who came in and never did carpentry before. Because it was all voluntary work. Right. You know. Um, we, we got a small grant from Board Falcher at the time for materials. Uh, 8,000 right. pounds it was at the time. Um, but a lot of the work was voluntary and we used to work at night. We, we'd start at 6 o'clock in the evening because everybody had a different job mm -hmm. and we'd string up lights and we'd work at night or we'd work at weekends. Mm -hmm. And uh, people took to stone cutting and, and carpentry and um, laying floors and paving and all and wiring and plumbing. And, um, it, it was a great, it was like the men's shed. It was like a, an ancient men's right. shed, as they say. You know? But think back that time, and I'm mm -hmm. down in the 80s now, because we emigrated yeah. in 88. Yes. And times were not good back in there in no. that time, and no. people were emigrating in droves. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. Corrifin itself, what kind of population, and what were you able to draw on then? Well, we didn't even draw on Corrifin, we just drew, uh, drew on Dysart. Okay. Um, farmer's sons. Um, teachers, there was uh, one doctor who was a surgeon in the hospital who came out here and worked with us, two shopkeepers. Um, they were drawn from all different, you know, uh, local, we, we had two local builders who were yeah. block layers, but they, they turned into stonework and yeah. um, even I myself, um, we, we had to get certain stones cut for windows and doors that were yeah. missing, you know. Um, and I, I remember pricing them. We were all getting paid five pounds an hour at the time. Right. That was the, that was the the payment. Now it wasn't payment, it was actually payment in shares, but, but we, under the old Brehan system we decided whether you were shoveling or whether you were the architect, you were entitled to five pounds an hour. Right. So anyway, uh, I realised that stone cutting would cost 50 pounds per stone from a monumental mason. 
Um, but I could cut I could cut a stone in three hours, which was fifteen pounds. Right. So I decided to learn stone carving, and I started cutting bits of windows and doors myself. You know. Right. Right. Um, so that was the way it worked. But it was a brilliant training program. You know. So would you say then, given the period of time as well in the eighties, that it may have helped keep people in the community who otherwise might have emigrated? Yeah, yes, it certainly did. And the seasonal work it provided afterwards would have helped as well, you know. Right. Um, it, it would have helped keep people at home. But, I mean, p- people are going to go anyway. Yes. Uh, and, and that was the thing. My, both my son and my daughter have emigrated to Canada and Australia. That's the way with the Irish mm-hmm. has been for the past 400 years. We mm-hmm. just get up and go, you know. Um, so I don't think it would have made any huge difference, but certainly made, made maybe made life a bit more comfortable and, uh, and a richer community, here, you know, and a richer community, and yeah. gave people a focus and an interest. Indeed. Yeah. So, Dick, where are we going from here? Okay, we're going to go upstairs yeah. and have a look at some of the rooms okay. as, as we go along, and I'll say a few words on each. Okay. So Dick, we've arrived up in a, a room on the second floor, and what are we in, about 15 feet by 10? Yes, that's right. Um, this was the chapel. The, every, every house at that period had a private chapel where people could go and say a few prayers. Um, surprisingly, under the floor here, or on, on the floor, is what's called a murder hall. And the murder hall is a square box that gave you access to the lobby downstairs when you came in the front door and the idea was that if somebody broke in the front door <coughs> they could be shot from up here um, while they were working on the other doors Okay. so um, some people say they poured boiling oil down on top of people but I don't believe a word of it because how long would it take you first yeah, to, get, to get a few <laughs> gallons of oil oh, and number yeah. two <laughs> how long is it going to take you to boil it you know? yes. your man isn't going to wait for you while you're boiling the oil so, <laughs> so I, I, could, I could see you dropping, dropping a big rock <laughs> yeah you could drop a big rock on him or you could shoot him with arrows or later guns right uh, from up here you know right but what's interesting about this little room is actually the ceiling and it shows how the ceilings or stone vaults were constructed and originally what they did was to put up a wooden form in the shape of a gothic arch <coughs> and they covered that with hazel mats and then they poured their lime concrete on top of the hazel mats and laid their vault stones on top of that and eventually <coughs> after a month or so they took down the form and the mats were still up there because you couldn't get them out of the concrete and they plastered over uh, the mats then so here we have actually evidence on the left hand side of the plaster and when the plaster fell down on the right hand side of the weave of the mats <coughs> um, what's also interesting is we can actually pull out pieces of hazel out of the holes there and we send them to the university we, we've done this carbon, carbon, test. carbon testing for uh, dating tower houses <coughs> and in fact we thought that this was a um, 1480s building but the carbon test came back at 1440, right. uh, which makes it a, quite an early house. Um, <coughs> we have around the chapel here, we have a few exhibits, and we have um, the names of members of the clan who have died in the past 20 years and have left a little a br- a brass plaque for us here. Um, down at the end here is a copy of a monument to Francis Patrick O'Neillan 
who was Field Marshal of the Austrian Army. Right. And this is a copy of a monument in Vienna, which was erected by Empress Marie Theresa right. uh, after he died. And uh, various things like that. <coughs> the last people to live in the castle here were the Hartnets. Uh, it was a widow, Nancy Hartney, sorry, Hartnett, mm-hmm. who um, uh, lived here in the early 1900s. Her husband was a policeman and he died early. Um, and when he died, she had nowhere to live because the police house was given up to the next policeman that came in. So she moved into the ruins of the castle and she raised three kids here and sent them to the local national school and they actually emigrated to Canada and they emigrated to Toronto and in fact um, uh, Kathleen Wade who is a great grandson of Nancy comes back every year with her family to visit to visit the home place uh, so they will be the last residents of the tower um, before the tower house was built <coughs> one of the ODs here was Bishop Limerick, uh, Bishop Connor OD he actually studied theology in Oxford and uh, became a doctor of theology <coughs> and he was Bishop Limerick and when he retired uh, as Bishop of Limerick in the year 1400 um, the people of Limerick made a collection and they made for him um, a mitre and crozier in silver and gold um, with all various <coughs> precious stones into it it's now in the Hunt Museum in Limerick and it's supposed to be one of the finest pieces of late medieval Irish art mm. um, both the crozier and mitre so that was Bishop Conor O'Dea what else have we here? I, I have a question before we move on you talk about the murder hall yes, yes. I can't help but notice mm. how deep yes. the floor is Yes. so yes. we are standing on roughly it would nearly look like four foot of stone of stone yes that is correct that is correct so that's a stone a stone vault on the ground floor uh, which supports the floors and then when you go up to the third floor you have another stone vault and in between then you have the you have wooden floors now the idea was that the house was basically fireproof um, if it was burned and Cromwell tried to burn all these tower houses without any great success but even if it was burned you could actually take out all the rubble and bring back the floors and put them in the following week right. um, that was the way it was designed um, in fact, um, because the mortar is lime, hydraulic lime, um, which gets stronger with carbon, takes in carbon from the air and it gets stronger as it goes along. So in fact, if you burned it, you actually made the wall stronger because the, the carbon went into the lime immediately, you know, right. and set like concrete. So, so they, were, they were very much fireproof houses and that, and that was the, the reason, right. the reason right. for that, you know. Um, I did also notice over in the corner there the vase, does it have any significance? No, the vase doesn't. The corner does. <laughs> and what's the uh, thing? That's called an ombre. Okay. And you get them in tower houses. They're little square cupboards, stone cupboards in the walls. There's quite a few of them upstairs. Um, but they were fitted out with a wooden box and uh, with doors on it and, and they were they were basically cupboards. But very often there were secret boxes <coughs> where you pulled out the wooden box, there was another one in the side. Okay. Um, in fact, we have one upstairs where if you pulled out the other one in the side, there was a third one. We said that again. Yeah. And they were basically the safes for okay. jewelry or whatever were kept here. You know? And that is not a millstone? That is a millstone. It's right. a hand millstone. It's a, it was called a curtain stone. Okay. And every house had a curtain stone. And it was basically for grinding your own corn. 
uh, that's an interesting one because there are three crosses mm-hmm. carved on it and um, it, it's very hard to date cordon stones because um, they're the same shape from about the year 1000 up to the year 1850 okay. uh, but we managed to date this one and these crosses ones because I met an old man in Milltown Malbay about 30 years ago I was interviewing him about our houses his name was Conor O'Brien and uh, I s- he had one of these millstones in his house and I said do you know anything about that he said I do he said actually that was carved by Don Lebronsha um, who was the first man to be buried in the new graveyard in Milltown because the landlord opened the new graveyard nobody would go into it but because he paid for the pauper pauper's grave he could bury him there and so it started after tradition and he was buried in 1714 he said um, now I knew he was telling the truth because the minute he said Donald the Broncha which means Donald the curtain cutter because Braun is the guinea for a, a, a curtain uh, I knew that he had his facts right mm-hmm. so that had to date this one date quite a few in the National Museum and quite a few in Clare because they're all the same design right. to the late 1600s right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so, so we're moving upstairs we're upstairs okay. and we're moving into a larger room here on the first floor so what, about uh, 20 foot by 30 yeah, 20, th- about 20 25 by 25 yeah, yeah, 20 yeah, by 25. 25 and we refer to this room as Mara Rua's room okay. now there's a bit of a story Mara Rua McMahon married Daniel Nealon um, in, 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 of this house in 1632 um, Daniel died on his way back from buying horses at Ballinasloe Fair and uh, she basically lived here on her own with her children but she was a great woman to modernise places and she um, decided that this was too old fashioned and she knocked out the miserable little window that was there and put in a big window and there was a fireplace upstairs she didn't like so she blocked it up and opened a more modern fireplace here um, later on she married Conor O'Brien from Lemina near Kilfenora and however she persuaded him to knock down half of his tower house um, which had been his family for 200 years and build a big Dutch mansion onto the side of the stairs so it's known as Lemina Castle right. and anyone who passes up North Clare will see this very imposing four story ruin of a Dutch gabled house um, but she was very forward thinking in her time um, she um, had a fish um, rearing industry she used to rear carp in three huge fish ponds that she built in, in Lemina uh, served by water from St Martin's Well which is still there and people, local people said she'd have no luck for it which she didn't have because she built her massive mansion in 1648 and in 1651, three years later, the Cromwellians arrived. Um, her husband was killed fighting the Cromwellians, and uh, the house fell into ruin. She moved into a house in Corrifin Village instead. But um, not to be outdone, she heard she was going to lose all her lands to the Cromwellians. She dressed up in her best finery and coach and went into Limerick, demanded to meet Colonel Ayrton, who was Cromwell's son in law and said she would marry the first Cromwellian officer who presented himself 
and out stepped a young man called John Cooper a young lieutenant of the Cromwellian army she married Cooper and uh, she retained all her lands and now uh, Lord, in- Lord Inchiquin and is descended from her who owned Dromolan Castle uh-huh. um, uh, so that line is descended from from Maru's line right. um, but there's a huge huge history there and as I say her son um, Patrick Joseph became Field Marshal of the Austrian army in fact her uncle uh, Turlock Rua McMahon um, before her was Austrian uh, was also Field Marshal of the Austrian army um, so I think they, they passed it down to the family uh-huh. Um, but as I say, huge, huge history about Marua. Now we don't know if it was Marua ever outside of this country. There's no evidence to say she was, or whether she saw the designs in magazines or whatever. But she certainly was going to modernise the burden, you know. Right. Um, so when you men- when you mentioned the, the influence <coughs> on the military abroad, this is also a room that I see an awful lot of military and yes. uh, history from the area where people participated in a variety of yes. Um, war zones. That's right, we have information here on, um, we have a list of all the County Clare men who died in the Great War 1914 to 1918 and they enlisted in all the Irish regiments the Leinster Regiment, the Munsters, the Dublin Fusiliers, the Connacht Rangers even the Inniskillen Fusiliers um, and uh, fought and died and then on the other wall then we have the Republican side uh, the proclamation of the Republic and uh, uh, various copies of banknotes issued, I think, even in Argentina to support the Republic back in 1916. Um, so, yeah, I suppose you call it the military history room. Right. And, and then we also have a museum, of course, with um, artifacts from that period. We have rifles here, we have a German Mauser rifle imported into Holt and English uh, Leonfields and various various other things of military I'm, I'm actually reading the um, Irish invasion how the, the Irish invasion of Canada the oh, three, yes. three invasions at the moment yes amazing yeah it is it is yeah, there's certainly had ambitious plans. Canada. So, so then, uh, and then we were under a wooden ceiling here. Yes. So as you were saying, we're on, on a, we're on a stone floor, flagstone yeah. store, but a wooden, wooden ceiling. Yes, that's right. right. Yeah, that's right. We, we erected this wooden ceiling back in 1986. I remember myself and a friend of mine, John Carney, brought that ceiling in through that window. Yeah. Um, we didn't even have electricity here because um, we had no roof in the building, and the ESP wouldn't connect us. So we had a candle in each corner right. of the room as we were bringing up the ceilings. But the, the thing was, the stone corbels sticking out of the walls um, were ideal yes. just for placing your wall plates and your yes. beams and joists and everything. And yes. everything fitted back together the way it should have. The way it was meant to be. The way it was meant to be, yeah. Indeed. Yeah. So then we go up to another floor? Yes, we will. Okay. So then we arrived up now in another room here, and again roughly the same dimensions. We're up. To, we've just come up a, a full flight of stairs. Isn't yes. So we we're are. over. We're over what we were under below. We are. We're standing now on a wooden floor with a stone vault over our heads again, um, a third floor level. This is very typical of um, 15th century tower houses. 
Um, this is where we show the audiovisual presentation of our monuments. And you can see in the corner there you have another ombre or a little wooden cupboard. Oh, yes. And you have the remains of a 16th century fireplace here, which was blocked up to allow Marua to open the fireplace below. Oh, okay. And up in the corner there you have um, <coughs> a little room in the thickness of the vault. Now it's a very small room inside there, it's only um, six foot by three. But they say it was to lock up children if there was a skirmish in the house. Um, so as they would be out of the way of the, the blades or whatever until the whole thing was over, you know. Right. And every tower house actually has one. Now, uh, when you say that, like, mm. so that's a bit like Irish construction of houses is you have a cavity, you have cavity wall. Yes, yes. So, mm. is yes. this construction a cavity wall in it a is sense? in the cavity. Oh, no, it, this is the only part of it. Uh, that's, that's a cavity. cavity. Yeah, the rest yeah. is solid. Solid. The rest okay. is solid, yeah. Absolutely. But the interesting thing about tower houses is as you go upstairs, the rooms get bigger. The reason being that the walls get thinner. Okay. So the wall, the ground floor level is nearly five foot thick, and it's only two and a half foot thick at the top. Okay. So, so the, 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 the best room is the one on, on the very top, you know. Right, right. Um, <coughs> next door here, Austin, we have a small little room off this room, which we refer to as the ensuite. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's actually a little workshop showing the tools that were used in the medieval period. And we have a, a fine collection of, of tools here, saws and augers and hammers and... Um, now, have, have you had any of this stuff uh, dated? Oh, well, it's not... Are these are all replicas? No, no, they're not replicas, but they're from the last century. Okay. And basically the tools wouldn't have changed from medieval period. Okay. From the Roman times up right. to even this century, they wouldn't have changed yeah. until power tools came in. That was the only big difference, you know? Right. Um, but it's, it's, uh, people have given me the things and collections out of houses over the years, and I just brought them and put them in here, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, yeah. Right. So where are we going next? We'll go upstairs. Okay. We have no option. So in transition between the two floors, we've got somewhere here and you've lock on the gate. Yeah, we have a little corridor in there. And that was, that's known as the garderobe. And the garderobe is actually the toilet of the tower house. There were two. Okay. There's one about third floor up and there's one at the top level. Um, <coughs> they, were, they were the medieval toilets. And basically what you had was a shaft which ran down through the building and opened up outside and I presume somebody came along with a shovel every week and fed the roses, you know. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but the garderobe, it's called garderobe from the French uh, because it's, it's there you hung your clothes over the winter to keep the moths away from them because they say the smell of urine keeps moths away from clothes, you know. Okay. So the French came up with the word garderobe, place where you put your, your clothes and we got the word from that wardrobe but it basically means the toilet. You know? Right. Yeah. Okay. And we're in another small room. We're in another little room, a little bedroom. Little um, bedroom. People say, or some people say, that this room is haunted. Um, this is the haunted room. Right. Uh, now, I worked here till one o'clock at night for years. Uh, I've never come across anything, but I'm not susceptible to these things. But I have had numerous people over the years coming up, uh, especially English people who would be interested in witches and all this kind of thing, and they say there's a little room up there and there's something different about it, you know. Um, so we just refer to it as a haunted room, but yeah. I, as I said, I've never seen anything. Yeah. Um, again, it has a stone vaulted ceiling 
overhead and a wooden floor this is our neolithic room where we keep the stone axes and, and all the stuff from, from that period and some of this would have been excavated it uh, would have excavated in the area or turned up during ploughing by accident uh, by the farmers you know right um, there's, a, there's an interesting little axe in here an iron axe and it's yeah. a viking axe um, with a bit of the haft left in it right. what fascinates me it, that was dredged up out of the river Shannon and presented to us by Michael McMahon a local historian but what fascinates me is there's a little iron wedge in the top of it driven into it the same as you put a handle on a hammer today yes you know the li- then uh, you're like a nail that's put down yeah, to create put down to, to, to widen it yeah and it's, it's still intact in it you know right even after a thousand years well and um, again you've had this stuff dated yeah yeah we have this stuff dated and most of the accents here would be uh, Neolithic, which we're talking about 5,000 to 4,500 years ago. And uh, the axes, as I say, would be Viking. Now, what we're looking at as well, some pictures of what would be uh, flora from the area. That's right. Um, Yeah, local photographers um, have taken photographs here of the the famous Burren flora. Uh, The Burren, which is the limestone landscape that we're uh, on the border of, um, is quite famous for its flora because it's the only place in Europe where you get Arctic and Mediterranean plants growing side by side mm-hmm. and it seems that in, in a Mediterranean environment the ice melted and carried with it seeds from the Arctic and planted them here so in May, particularly May and June the whole area is alive with coloured um, flowers and, and, and uh, blossoms um, which you will not find side by side anywhere else in the world. So Dick, when you mentioned the burn, a lot of people know about the burn, come visit the burn. So yeah. from an access perspective, how far away are we from the burn at the moment? And yeah. how quickly and easily can someone come and visit you here? Oh yeah, well, well I mean, we're on the edge of the burn. We right. like to consider ourselves the gateway of the burn. Everywhere from here north to Galway is, is basically a burn karst limestone. Uh, area now it, it, it's not obvious in summertime because the grass grows very thickly up between the cracks. So when you're looking across a field, you're looking at a green field. Right. But in winter time, all you'll see is rock. You know. Yeah. yeah. But um, it, it's very rich for cattle, and that's why, as I said, there were 76 tower houses built in the burn, and they were all big farms. And even the, the Cistercians who came here in the 12th century and built Corkham Row Abbey, and uh, named the abbey Santa Maria de Petra Fertilis. Our Lady of the Fertile Rock, right. which is a very good description of the burden. Indeed, indeed, mm. indeed. I just noticed uh, back here in this stuff here an arrow. Yes, yes, mm. uh, it's, yes, it's, um, well, we have flint arrowheads from the Neolithic period, but the actual arrow here is, a, is an iron arrow, and I think it's, um, I can't even remember where it was excavated from, but, uh, um, the haft is still on it. And, and there it looks like in, in a stick of bamboo. Yes, it yeah. probably shoved into a stick of bamboo, bamboo. but it yeah. just shows out how, how it was worked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, fascinating. So we're uh, continuing up. Yes, continuing up. This is the, it's um, many layers. We're not in. in <laughs> that's to say, we're these things went four floors, so we've gone three. Another one to yeah, go. Well, amazing. Well, you could have several floors on the staircase side because the rooms are smaller. Right. Uh, and in the main domestic section, then you have four floors. Now, the section we're now coming up along, this is what you're saying, was this was rebuilt? Yes, it was. Because yes, I would tell from right. the steps have changed yes, into yes. modern construction. That's right, yeah. yeah. We had to build two floors onto it, Austin, before we could start any restoration work inside. And now, so... This is all new. So, yeah. these, so we're, we're looking at new, but it's definitely yeah. built in the 
old style. It is, yeah. Because you wouldn't know it was new. That's true. Well, it's it's limestone that we, um, as I say, we, we recycled from old buildings who were often recycled from medieval buildings anyway, you know. Right. Um, so it looks, looks much the same. Now we're going into... Uh, the main hall, known as the solar, these were known as the solar or in Gaelic on Greenan, okay. which was the room that let the light in from the sun. So it would have been the only room with windows in the tower house. Right. Um, and it was the family room. So uh, it's, qu it's quite spacious. Uh, it's probably 30 feet by nearly 40. With the uh, high ceiling. With a high, a high ceiling, yeah. High, uh, yeah, um, slated roof on it. Right. Um, so you can see um, the medieval window is on that side, which is a four-light four window. And there was another one on this side, which is still outside. You can see it from the outside. But when they put in the fireplaces and chimneys, they blocked up the four-light window. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, so, but it can still be seen. But it's, it's, it's a, fine, a fine room. Now, and and uh, what looks like a balcony. A, a minstrel's gallery, I think they're referred to as generally. And there was no evidence to say it was ever here, but um, there was no reason, seen as we had built, built a lot of this from the new, so we felt we were entitled to put one up anyway. You know? Indeed. Indeed. We did. Now, Indeed. I have some fascinating things here, um, referring to the, the building or the construction of tower houses. Here against the wall, we have slates off the roof. Okay. Now, they're local slates. They're very rough and very crude and very big, and uh, they're basically three foot high by two foot wide. Um, the slates that time were not nailed, but they were um, hung on the roof on wooden pegs. Right. And we still refer, even today, to hanging slates. You hang slates on the That's roof. Right, yeah. um, and they were drilled with half-inch holes and oak pegs um, uh, fitted into them. And the reason was that they knew that time that nails are going to rust. <laughs> okay. But oak pegs won't if they kept dry. Okay. They'll last forever, you know. And, and that's why they, they pegged all their now when you, the roof. When we look at these, as you say, we're looking at one here and it's about two foot by three foot or there in yeah. that 18 inches by yeah. three foot. Yeah. That's a huge weight. It is. So yeah. you talk engineering because I know yeah. from our side of the world where houses are built to, to yes. take snow. Yes, yes. And, yes. and the, the mm. uh, rafters have to be a certain pitch. The, yes, yes, that's right. N yes. Not just pitch, but also mm. the, the gap between them. The, oh, yes, absolutely. So, yeah. so yeah. they yeah. would have had to have good engineering knowledge oh, in order yeah. to, to be able to take a roof of that. Absolutely, yeah. And of course, their roofs were oak. Now, we couldn't afford oak. We, we have a spruce roof. Okay. Um, but uh, because there was so much oak in Ireland that time, practically everything was oak, you know. So the roofs would have been oak, which is much stronger and would carry a much heavier weight. And then the pitch was generally 50 degrees. Um, again, for engineering uh, functional purposes, you know. Uh, a 50 degree roof will work better than a, than a low pitch. Okay. Um, um, so the construction is you're looking at the, the beams which are the rafters, then you yeah. have wood uh, on top of that. You have planks, yes. Planks closing planks it in, yes. and then you would have had the slate on top of that. That's right. That, that's, that's how it worked. Yeah. Right. Um, and then on top of the whole lot, then you had ridge tiles. Right. Now, because we didn't have a lot of clay, or we didn't use a lot of clay in medieval times, the ridge tiles were actually hand cut out of a block of limestone. And I have one underneath here which is five foot long. Right. I'm not going to lift it up. No, and I can, see, I can see it stretching over there. But I'll take up this one, yeah. which is only two foot long. And from the top, it looks like an ordinary grey ridge tile. But if you turn it up, you'll see how it is cut out of 
a lump of stone. That's right, yeah. You know? Yeah. So yeah. there was a huge amount of work in that. Indeed. In Indeed. Doing that, you know? Indeed. We'll put them back again. So, but of course, labour was cheap. And uh, um, they could take their time doing things, you know? Yeah, yeah. So they did. Now, outside the roof, you have the wall walk. Which we can go up on in a minute and have a look. Now, walk around. Yeah. I, I just see, and it's catching my eye, I see slavery, and the, uh, yes, it begs yes, the question. Yes. Because slavery was abolished in the UK in yes. 1839 and then 1860 in, in the US. Yes. So, um, when you say labour was cheap, yes, I take it a certain mm-hmm. amount of labour here was slave labour. No. No? And the reason it wasn't is because even though slavery was abolished in 1860 in the United States, yeah. in 1839 in Britain and the colonies, it was abolished in Ireland in the year 1111. Right. At the Synod of Ratbrasil. Okay. And even before the Normans arrived, 60 years before the Normans arrived, we abolished slavery. Right. But you did have landless labourers. Yes. Which were basically serfs. Yes. And they did a lot of the labouring work. Um, but... Um, um, and, and in yeah. many ways you had indentured servants that you had of course you had of course yeah. the, the, yeah. the, the name changed the, the, yeah, job, the, the job the job didn't the, yeah. <laughs> we, got, we gave That's you a new job title <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's basically it. So terms and conditions <laughs> remain the same yeah. you're now a shovel manager or something <laughs> That's right. uh, so, so we have some cannonballs we have cannonballs and we have too. some examples of glass Yes, and yes. of course, glass is a very old. Uh, it is, it, it is. Um, and these cannonballs, because yeah. right, of course, these th- while this is a, ca- it's a home, it's also a fortification that needed to be defended. It, it did, of course. Now, a lot of these cannonballs would have, would have been dug up in various places around the county. You know, right. we have a huge one here, which is a 32-pound ball. Now, that certainly wasn't fired out of any gun that was carried over the mountains. Yeah. That actually. Um, was for the Napoleonic coastal fortifications around the coast of Clare. Okay. Um, to fire a ball that would travel two and a half miles out into the sea Whoa. and sink any ships that were, were coming in. Uh, in fact, they had a system in the Martello Towers of heating the balls red hot yes. on a brazier before they would fire them. So it would and set the boat on fire? Set the ship on fire, yeah. 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 But what we do have here is interesting, and I haven't seen anywhere else, are road bowling balls. Oh, the bowls? The bowls, as they say. And Down in West Cork, the bowls. It's, it's coming in West Cork now and Armagh and Holland. Right, and, and Holland. The, and Holland. And they have the World Championships every year between Cork, Armagh, and Holland. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I've no doubt that that came in with the Williamites. And that's why. Uh, bowling cannon balls. Right. And eventually, locals decided to cut stone balls because they couldn't get their hands on cannon balls. And it was popular all over Ireland. And I often think the GEA should make it a fourth Gaelic game, you know. Right. Um, um, because it was, it was coming all over Ireland one time. So, um, I, and this is a total red herring in a way, but yeah. is, is a bowling ball, mm. does it conform to any dimensions? Oh, it has to. No, I'm no expert that, on that, it. But yeah. com- mm. consistent with yes. what yes. would have been any of these historics. Well, I can see a clay one there now is, is nearly identical to the five-pound cannonball. Yeah. So maybe... Uh, I, I don't know what the weights are, yeah. but I'd say they come from, uh, from, from the standard... Um, that period. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Mm. So have we another floor, or are we on the top of the... We're uh, going to the we, ha- we, have, we have another floor above, which is um, basically our paint store, 
But but what we can do is we can go up and walk around the wall, walk walk around the roof, and uh, yeah. gives an impression, it gives a sense of what what's in the area and yeah. what yeah. what they would have been able to see when they were yeah. surveying their property. That's right. Absolutely. Now I would take it as well that these would have been built somewhat in the centre of of someone's holdings, would they? Yes, that's right. Usually they were. So again, they were. from the the, mm. the see mm. up on top, they'd be able to get a good view of their their uh, of their own uh, property. Now another thing that we've noticed um, because we did distribution maps of the towers and there. Uh, and people used to say they were built so they could be uh, in line with other tower houses and they could signal if the English were coming or whatever. But in fact, what we found was most of them were built next to the road or next to a river. And they were basically for transportation in and out. Right. For getting your farm goods exported or getting your uh, materials imported. And of course, roads came after the river, so they would have been yeah. built by the rivers and then the roads developed maybe. Well, there were roads. There were roads. Some, yeah. um, but there were... Basically, just um, pony tracks, tracks you know, through the wh- wherever the yeah. land enabled yeah. the, the yeah. track to go west. That's right. Yeah. 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 So yeah. up we go. So Dick, we've come up and we're able to look out and we're seeing the modern slates on the roof at the yes, moment. Yes, yes, But you're so yes. phenomenal, as was just said, like two years and you, you brought, you really recreated two, two stories of this place. We did, we did, and, and, and brought it back to what it probably looked like in the 15th century, you know. And uh, um, so from up here we have a view uh, that's east. Yes, that's right, yeah. And um, we're probably on a good day, you'd see what, five to ten miles? You would, you would see five to ten miles. Whereas here on the you south, would. there's hills, so we're only we're able to see the expanse of the south and around to the west. Yes, that's and right. the west as well. It's hills, hills, the hills of Clare. That's that's right. Beautiful green verdant hills, and then to the north of us, you have the Burn and, and Mullaghmore and the mountains. You can, I don't know if you can see them today with the mist. No, we can't. No, uh, we no, can. They're up no. there. And um, the area around here was was uh, very wet in the right. 15th century. Um, so we're basically on an island, um, but the land has been reclaimed since. Right. But uh, the lake up there, Ballycullen, would have stretched down here. Right. Uh, originally, you know. Right. Yeah. Indeed. And the land yeah. isn't quite good. It's quite not bad land. Oh no, not it's very, really, it's very yeah. really good land. So as you yeah. as you say, yeah. like these these um, yeah. towers were built where the land was yes. farm uh, agrable. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Indeed. It was. And the ODs built four of them. And even though they had land stretching from here out to Spanish Point, they built all four here in Dyson. Right. Because this was the good land. Now, I know we, we're not, uh, given that it's uh, a rather damp day, or gone law buggy. We won't do the, the walk on the trail, but mm. there is then from here, uh, you have a five kilometre um, yes. trail that takes in a lot of the sites, it, it does, it important does. aspects of the, the site. Well, Dysart is very rich in archaeological sites. Right. Um, we have 25 monuments, basically. Uh, within a mile of the castle, and we've laid out we've laid out a trail linking all 25 monuments, um, and those would include, say, there's another tower house at Ra, um, belonging to the O'Hogan family, and we have another tower house at Belly Griffey, which is of the O'Griffey families, okay. who, who actually moved to Belgrade in in the 1750s. 
So um, you're starting to, we're starting to see a few people coming through, which is yes, good. And, is. And, uh, is one of the things about it is, while well, we saw a few people coming through there, it is a spiral staircase. What's <laughs> the width of the staircase? By uh, it's about uh, oh, 20 uh, inches, is it? It's, it's um, 80 Millim- uh, centimeters, whatever that is. 80 centimeters is yeah. uh, three quarters of 40 inches, or four fifths <laughs> of 40, uh, 40 inches. Okay. Mm-hmm. So five, 5 into 40 is 8, 4, it's 32. Right, right, very good. <laughs> so I was right, about 30, 30 inches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but uh, the staircase is interesting in itself. It's, it's always in a clockwise direction. And the reason being that the defender has the advantage with his right hand of the sword. And the attacker, okay. the attacker hasn't because the newel post is in his way to swing a sword. Okay. Um, for some reason or other, in churches and abbeys, it's always the other way around. The reason being that the, the, the attacker has the advantage. And I think the reasoning behind that is you only attacked a church if it was taken over by. Um, so you're. So, yes, yeah, so you know, the enemy yeah. is already in there. The enemy is already in there. Okay. So you have the advantage of the Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, so, so I was talking about your monuments and yeah. the trail, you know. Now, we have a very famous Romanist story from the 1150s uh, of the little parish church here in Dysart, and it's covered with um, rings of animal and human heads and various types of geometric patterns on it. Then we have the high cross in the field beside it, also dated the, the 1150s, which shows the figure of Christ and the saint who brought Christianity to this area, Saint Ola and two inscriptions on it, one from the ODs, from um, Michael O.D., who had it erected after the Cromwellians knocked it down, and he dated his uh, repairs to 1684, and then to the Protestant landlord, um, Francis Hutchinson Singh, who also repaired the cross in 1871, so he put his inscription on it as, right, well, right. as well. But it's a, a fine example of a, a medieval Irish high cross. Um, then we have stone forts dating from the early Iron Age period, and uh, we have a proselytizing school dating from the 1820s, and uh, very various other monuments on the trail like that. You know? I noticed downstairs uh, before we started out and we were sitting and chatting. There's something. Like there's a big cauldron of, from, the, oh, from yes. the famine. The famine. That's right. That was a, a soup kitchen uh, from Ballyvahan Workhouse. It, it was um, presented to us. The workhouse was taken down actually in the early part of the century and uh, the site laid out as the GA um, pitch and, and dressing rooms and all that. <coughs> but some of the artefacts came to us. One of them was an iron swivel window from the workhouse, which we have, and, and the iron pot, the iron right, pot. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. <coughs> so then around here during the time of the famine, mm. um, it was affected, well, given the, the land and the, the history of how was yeah. it affected? It was very badly affected. Uh, Dice of Corifin, very badly affected. The work, there was a workhouse also in Corifin, um, <coughs> which only one building remains now, the reception building uh, remains of it. But it was uh, totally overcome. I think, I think it was built to accommodate 400 people right. and you ended up with nearly 3,000 yeah. trying to get in and trying to get some food right. during the famine, you know. I mean, the famine was brought about by a lot of things, but I, I, in my own opinion, it's economics. Um, that pri- prior to 1800, um, people were well paid for food and vegetables which was exported Um, and so people could live in small holdings of an acre or two acres or whatever and still survive but in 1815 actually brought an end to two wars it brought an end to the war in America 
are brought into the war against Napoleon. Right. And so the British army was disbanded to a huge extent, and all the food that was exported from Ireland was no longer of any value. And so people, whatever corn they grew, and they grew quite a lot of corn, was used to pay the rent, and they relied on the potatoes to feed carry them through the winter, and yeah. there were no potatoes. Yeah. And that's basically what happened. Right. Well, economics had a lot to do with it. Oh, yeah. mm. So, um, Dick, if anyone then is looking to come out here, you're open from when till when? Yeah, we're open from the beginning of May, Austin, until the end of September, and we're open seven days a week, 10 to 6. And yeah. uh, there's a website out there? There is, um, odplan.org or dicercastle.com uh, and I strongly would urge anyone if you're anywhere near Ennis uh, or out visiting the Cliffs of Moher or down down Milltown of Alby Ennis Diamond any of those areas put it on your itinerary make sure that you come in through here because it's fascinating certainly worth it must be probably is it the, the one that the house is in the best condition in the country um, no, they're, they're, in fairness, there are a lot of them restored. A lot of tower houses restored, right. but uh, most of them are restored as private houses and private uh, dwellings. Uh, it's, it's one of the few that's been restored actually as a museum. You know, right? Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, Dick, I want to thank you for taking the time. It's been fascinating and interesting, and really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much, Austin. I'm delighted. As I say, I'm heading out to Canada, and. Uh, I, I, I want to appreciate a bit of the heritage in Canada when I'm out there. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.